Welcome to the podcast of the United Church of Bogota. We are a Bible-based church ministering to the English-speaking community in Bogota, Colombia. We invite you to join our diverse fellowship as we encounter God in worship and experience the impact of His grace on every part of our lives and in our world. To learn more, please visit our website at ucbogota.org. Glad to see you all. If you have your Bibles, then we're going to turn to Romans 11, 11 through 24. Again, that's Romans 11, verses 11 through 24. I'll be reading from the New International Version. So some words and terminology might be a little different, but hopefully we'll address those as the sermon continues. So this morning, we'll continue our reading in Romans, and along the way, we've been asking some pretty hard questions. Is God fair? Some of you remember that? You remember the answer? Yes and no. Wait, yes and no. Yes, God is fair, and that when we look at his character, we realize that he is good and he is just, right? Yes, God is fair. And no, God isn't fair when we realize that he has poured out his grace and mercy on us through what he did with his son, Jesus, atoning for us. Because we don't deserve it. So yes, God is fair and he is unfair in that sense. We also got a chance to ask ourselves and wrestle with the question, has God rejected the Jews? And so the answer to that was no, but we did learn that God has preserved a remnant for his people, meaning that God has chosen the Jews to be grace to his people. He's chosen the Jews by grace to be his chosen people. That word is really important, chosen people, because we're going to talk about more people in this sermon. If I'm going to be honest, last week's sermon left us in a bit of suspense right? It left us in a bit of suspense when we read about the current state of some of the Jews that have turned away from God, especially when we look at the the previous verses. But I like a good cliffhanger. I do, right? And last Sunday's sermon left us in suspense. It left us in a cliffhanger. And I like a good cliffhanger. I think a lot of the telenovelas end in cliffhangers, right? You all know about telenovelas. I I don't know about those because I don't watch telenovelas. But one of my favorite cliffhangers, probably of all time, is the ending of Star Wars, episode five, The Empire Strikes Back. Y'all seen that? And boy, do they strike. I mean, you're watching the film, Luke Skywalker, we know about him, and is he a Jedi? Is his purpose to follow the Jedi way? And he goes to this weird, foggy planet and gets his training from Yoda. And so you're thinking while you're watching the movie that, oh, man, he's about to do some damage to this Sith Empire. And then Han Solo and Leia, they're coming together to 
fight the Imperial forces and you think things are going well. And so you get to the end of the film, you get to the Cloud City, Darth Vader has thwarted their plans. He freezes Han Solo in carbonite and Luke, poor Luke, he finds out that his arch enemy, Darth Vader is his father, <laughs> right? Oh man, that's, that's rough. And that's the end of the film. That's the end of episode five. Fun fact, how many, how long did it take for the next film to be released? Three years. So as Star Wars fans, you realize that Darth Vader is Luke Skywalker's father, Han Solo is frozen in carbonite, and they're left in a perilous state and have to wait three years until Return of the Jedi. I think if you watch it on Disney Plus, you have to wait for like three seconds before you watch the next film. But, you know, the olden days. Um, but that is really, really strange. As a Star Wars fan, we're asking ourselves, is that it? Is that the end of their story? And that's what Paul is essentially asking when we read through this scripture. And so he's asking, is their sin beyond repair? Their sin? The Jews, is their sin beyond repair? And so I'll share three points as we follow along in this passage, and we'll get to read about how God uses the Gentiles to help the Jews, how God uses the Jews to help the Gentiles, and how God's dis he displays his character throughout the passage in this scripture right, to, to graft us, to insert us into his family, into one family. And so we step back and look at the big picture, we realize that God has reconciled his believers back to him so that we must reconcile with each other. And so let's stand and read Romans 11, verses 11 through 24. <clears throat> Again, I ask, did they stumble so as to fall beyond recovery? Not at all. Rather, because of their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make Israel envious. But if their transgression means riches for the world and their loss means riches for the Gentiles, how much greater riches will their fullness bring? I am talking to you, Gentiles. Inasmuch as I am the apostle to the Gentiles, I make much of my ministry in the hope that I may somehow arouse my own people to envy and save some of them. For if their rejection is the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance be but love, life from the dead? If the part of the dough offered as first fruits is holy, then the whole batch is holy. If the root is holy, so are the branches. If some of the branches have been broken off and you, though a wild olive shoot, have been grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing sap from the olive root, do not boast over those branches. If you do, consider this. You do not support the root, but the root supports you. You will say then, Branches are broken off so that I can be grafted in. Granted, 
but they were broken off because of unbelief, and you stand by faith. Do not be arrogant, but be afraid. For if God did not spare the natural branches, he will not spare you either. Consider, therefore, kindness and sternness of God, sternness to those who fell, but kindness to you, provided that you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you will also be cut off. And if they do not persist in unbelief, they will be grafted in, for God is able to graft them in again. After all, if you were cut out of an olive tree that is wild by nature and contrary to nature were grafted into a cultivated olive tree, how much more readily will these, the natural branches, be grafted into their own olive tree? This is God's word. You may be seated. Um, let's pray. Father, uh, we thank you for your word. And um, in this sermon, we want to ask you that you illuminate, bring your word to life, uh, soften our hearts, challenge us as we continue to ask more hard questions. We, we realize that asking hard questions is a good thing, but we don't want it to be left up to us. We need your word. We need a community. We need your spirit in order to navigate these questions that we have. So be with us as we ask the hard question of, is the, the Jews sin beyond repair. Um, thank you for being with us. We praise in Jesus' name. Amen. So that's our question for today. Was their sin beyond repair? Was the Jews' sin beyond repair? So the answer is no, right? And Paul, he's referring to the hard-hearted Jews. Jews that have a very hard heart, the ones that have rejected God, right? And as a matter of fact, Paul, he sees some good in addressing the transgression of the Jews. And if you look at verse 11, he says that salvation has come to the Gentiles. And this is a good thing, right? The new believers that Paul is speaking to. And so the Israelites were, however, they were, they were God's chosen people. We've established that. And that meant that God chose his own people, right? The remnants to carry out his mission and reflect his glory. That is a great task, but that's a task that they failed. The Israelites failed. They rebelled. They sinned. They were like you and me. If we were given that task, we would have sinned because we are not perfect. But that warrants the question, was that the end of the Israelites chapter? Now, honestly, the, the nature of their sin is really, really bad. But God uses that sin for his good. And I want to just take a point here and say that I'm not telling everyone to go out and sin and do whatever you want, right? The Bible is very clear in saying that the wages of sin is death, right? So it makes it clear that sin has very deadly consequences. My point in looking at the Jews' transgression or their sin is that God knew that that was going to happen and that it set up in his plan 
to include another people group to be a part of his promises as a result of the original Israelites' sin. He knew that all of this was going to happen. And so Paul goes on to say that salvation has come to the Gentiles to make the Israelites envious. Some of your versions say jealous, even. Jealous, envious. That's a pretty strange reaction initially, right? But I think it makes more sense when we dig deeper and consider what God has given these Gentiles, these new believing Christians. One, salvation from sin and death. That's huge, especially in that context, right? Two, blessings from their God. Three, sonship from God, being heirs to the throne of God and being heirs to the promises of God. And four, most importantly, relationship with God. These are all the things that these new believers, these Gentiles are receiving from God. And the the Jews, the ones with the hard hearts, they're standing off to the side looking and seeing what the Gentiles are receiving, right? So when we look at this word envious, I think it would be better to take away envious or jealous and replace that with the word provoke, right? So what Paul is trying to express when he talks about envy and jealousy or that the, you know, he wants to make the Israelites jealous, what he is saying is that he wants Um, He's trying to express here that God is using the Gentiles and their relationship with him to make the Jews envious in order to want to come back to God, to recognize that they need to come back to God and enjoy their relationship, their intended relationship with him. That's what he is trying to express when he's trying to make the Israelites jealous. So I've been reading a book, um, Andrew mentioned that I'm in seminary, and I've been reading a book called Evangelism in the Early Church by Michael Green. And this book takes the reader way back to the first century, a time where there were a lot of good things happening in the early church, and there were a lot of challenging things happening in the early church. Namely, how difficult it was to evangelize to hard-hearted Jews. According to Green, the Jews in the first century had a list of grievances towards Christianity, this this gospel. Number one, the Israelites were hard-hearted. They felt like their status was claimed, or in other words, appropriated by Christians. So think about it. As an Israelite, you would think this in your mind. How would you feel if you found out that there was a true Israel, a true Israelite status, and the only way you could attain this true Israelite status is by following and accepting and believing the gospel of this Messiah, this this Jesus of Nazareth? Two, the Israelites claimed that their scriptures were being stolen by Christians. They're familiar with the Old Testament and they know it, but to use it in such a way, this Jesus of Nazareth, 
like knowing the scriptures and saying that I am the Messiah. Three, the Israel's law was broken by Jesus. They saw Jesus having a relationship with these Gentiles, performing miracles on the Sabbath. I mean, how dare you? So all of these grievances, this list of grievances begs the question, how are Israelites supposed to be drawn to Jesus? How are they? Green goes on to say that one of the ways that these hard-hearted Israelites were provoked to love in the early church was seeing the change in the Gentiles. Their community began to change once they heard and believed in the gospel. And Green says, the joyous fellowship of the early community with its apostolic leadership, its community of food and possessions, its earnest meetings for prayer, its deep and intimate brotherhood, this too must have been an appeal, had an appeal all its own. Even persecution would only serve to deepen this love for the brethren. This makes me think about when you're in a restaurant and you're sitting there, you've gotten your menu and you're trying to figure out what to eat, what you're in the mood for. And then the waiter comes by with this delicious meal and it passes you by and you're looking like, you know, and it goes to another table and you're thinking to yourself, I'll have what she's having, right? Or if you've, you know, been to parties way before the pandemic era, remember parties, right? We used to get together. Um, if you've been to parties and you're mingling, trying to meet new people, make friends and things like that, and you're off to the side talking to one person, and while you're having your little small talk, you hear another group just burst into laughter, knee slapping, slapping each other, drinks are spilling, and everyone's laughing, and you're trying to keep up your conversation, but in the back of your mind, you're like, I want to I want to go over, spend time with, with them. This is what the experience for these hard-hearted Israelites was. They witnessed that thriving community of the Gentiles. And just like the Gentiles in this passage, we Christians ought to live our lives in such a way that it provokes the unbeliever to want to seek a relationship with God. This is not me saying that we should boast in our health and in our wealth, but instead boast about our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul says it in 1 Corinthians 1, verses 30 and 31. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God. That is our righteousness, our holiness, and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boasts in the Lord. So I have to ask you, what provocative behavior should come from the 21st century Christian? What provocative behavior should come from the 21st century Christian? I got a few things. It may look like loving your neighbor who is extremely hard to love. 
or it may look like treating people with kindness instead of hostility, especially when hard issues like politics and religion are brought to the table. That's provocative. For me, it looks like forgiveness, right? Asking for it and giving it freely, if I might add, that's provocative. So why am I giving this forgiveness? Why am I forgiving freely? Well, it's because I'm reminded that Jesus forgives me and he forgives you. Every time we go to him and beg for forgiveness for our sins. And so who are we to withhold that? I really like how the commentator R. Kent Hughes puts it when it comes to this idea of provoking one another. He says, are the Jews we provoked, are the Jews we meet provoked to jealousy? Again, wanting that desire for a relationship, wanting what they used to have, or are they just provoked? Are they just made upset? Are they just irritated by what we say and do? So on one hand, God uses the Gentiles to provoke the hard-hearted Jews into recognizing that they are in dire need of a relationship with God. And on the other hand, God uses the elected Jews to help the Gentiles by having them grafted in to the promise that was originally established with Abraham. And we see this in Paul's illustration, this grafting in. Um, obviously, we don't use that language nowadays. Uh, when, when we look at the word grafted, it's basically an insertion, an inserting of one thing into another, mainly trees back in that day. But if you all are doctors, um, you all might use that term grafting in um, from one organ into another. Um, doctors, you can correct me if I'm, you know, if I'm wrong on that. But with Paul's illustration, we have two trees. One tree is the olive tree being represented by the Jews, God's chosen people, right? But as we read in the scripture, some of those branches are being cut off, right? Those branches that are cut off are represented by the hard-hearted Jews that have rejected the gospel in a relationship with God. So olive tree, chosen people, people who don't believe, people who reject, cut off. And you have another tree. You have a wild olive tree. This represents the Gentiles. And so what Paul is describing here is this grafting in, this inserting of new branches, the Gentiles, the wild olive branches, into the original olive tree to make one tree. Not just one tree, but one thriving tree to invigorate, reinvigorate both the branches that have been grafted in or reinserted and the original branch and tree that was already established. This is a result of both people groups, the Israelites who still believe in the promises of God and the Gentiles, the new believers. But in this passage, there's a warning. Not a warning to the Jews, but a warning to the Gentiles. And so let's look at verse 18. It says, do not consider yourself to be superior 
to those other branches. If you do, consider this. You do not support the roots, but the roots supports you. In other words, he's saying to the Gentiles, don't be arrogant. You have all these blessings. You have an established relationship with God. You're enjoying all that. But don't forget, don't be arrogant. Don't feel like you're superior to God's chosen people or even the people who've been cut away. Right? Now, these people, they were once divided, segregated, hostile to one another. And this grafting in, this inserting of branches into one family, this is reconciliation. I came across a story of Joe and Amy. Not too far from where I live, there's a sign that says, please don't drink and drive in honor of Amy Wall. This is what Joe says. He goes on to explain that in 1992, he was driving under the influence and rear-ended Amy's car into a tree, thus taking her life. And for that, Joe served seven years in prison, sitting with that guilt, sitting with that shame. And in 1999, he was released to his family and friends. But there was a church called New Hope Community Church that was also preparing for his release as well. Joe remembers going up to the church and there were oak trees surrounding the church. And on every single oak tree, there were yellow ribbons tied around the branches and a huge yellow banner that read, welcome home, Joe. Days pass, and Joe's mentor calls him and says that Amy's brother wants to speak to him. So you can already imagine how he's feeling. Eventually, they meet Joe and Amy's brother, and they talk for hours. And in that conversation, Amy's brother is able to honestly and vulnerably air out his grievances. Amy's brother was able to share the fact that he thought that Joe was a complete monster for what he did to his sister. And Joe was able to ask for forgiveness. A few days later, Joe's mentor got another call. And Joe's mentor said that Amy's father wants to speak to you. They meet. And Amy, Amy's father says, Joe, I've been following you and what you've been doing in your rehabilitation process, even while you're in prison. And I approve of it. I, I approve of it. Joe continued to ask for forgiveness from Amy's father and the rest of Amy's family. 
and something unexpected happened. <clears throat> there was a relationship that grew between Joe and Amy's family. So much so that during an event, a restorative justice council event that Joe was being a part of, Amy's father showed up, spotted Joe, ran up to him, gave him a hug, and said, I love you. Joe went on to say, I took his daughter's life and he was still able to say, I love you. And that is a true testament to the miracle of reconciliation and why Christ died on the cross. That, that story is hard to read. And if I'm, if I'm gonna be really honest, it's, it's hard to believe. There's, there's parts in that story to me that don't fit. And I believe that this is the exact point that Paul is trying to make when he's talking about being grafted in. Being, being grafted in, being inserted into God's family is something that we don't deserve. And it feels unnatural because we're used to our sinful nature. That's what's natural to us, or at least that's what feels natural. And so it doesn't make sense because there is nothing that we believers have done to deserve his love. And so therefore, when we think about being inserted into a bigger family, God's family, what should our response to others be? Humility, right? We ought to reconcile with one another, brothers and sisters. Um, I was in St. Louis uh, about a month ago and I got a chance to meet one of my favorite professors. Now granted, I've only been in seminary for one year, um, but I got to meet one of my favorite professors, Dr. Eswine. And he talked about like conflict and, and you know, sin and our, our, our human nature and how our hearts are just so, so, so ugly. <laughs> um, and he said something very simple, but it still sticks with me. He said, in whatever conflict you find yourself in, whatever problem with people, move towards people. You're trying to figure out what to do, just move towards people. And so we shouldn't think of ourselves as better than people because of our nationality, our gender, our privilege, our own works, or even our own faith. And this is what Paul was urging the Gentiles to realize. Don't be, don't be arrogant. Don't feel like you're superior. And so God not only uses the Gentiles to help the Israelites, he uses the Israelites to help the 
Gentiles. And finally, we see God's character in this process. Paul describes God's character as being stern and kind in this whole grafting, inserting process. Sternness for those Israelites who have rejected God and kindness for those who have been grafted in, inserted into the family. Provided that you continue in his kindness. Provided that you continue in his kindness. Now, I want to I stop here and preface this clause that Paul has shared. Because some of us, if we're going to be honest, some of us might read that clause in the verse and say, all right, I have to have more faith so that God will be kind to me. Or I need to work to keep my salvation. Or I need to read my Bible and pray more so that I'll continue to be in God's good graces. Now, reading your word and praying is essential to Christian life, and those are great things, and we ought to be doing those things, but that is not what Paul is talking about here. Paul, in his words, what he is saying is that we would like to believe, rather we would love to believe, that once we're truly part of God's family, then his love will be unconditional and we can just do whatever we want to do. We would love to believe that. But his love isn't unconditional, full stop. There's something else that needs to be added there. What Paul is saying is that his love and kindness will always remain if we continue to put our faith in the one who saves not in ourselves. If we continue to put our faith in the one who saves, which is Jesus Christ. Paul made it very clear that those who God was stern with were the ones who rejected God. They had hard hearts to the gospel. I've said a few things about this clause when it comes to salvation in our heart and Some of you might be asking yourselves, am I, well, am I still saved? Like, or am I saved? Has salvation, have I received that? Those are good questions to ask, but I encourage you to talk with your brothers and sisters, church leaders, to hash out that question, right? I can say this, chances are if you're asking if you are still saved, then most likely yes, But I want to emphasize that Paul is talking about the Israelites who have rejected the gospel. It made me think about Colossians when Paul visited the city of Colossae. And Paul had heard of the false teachings that they had heard and started to believe. And so as a missionary, he he already gets the lay of the land and he ministers to the church And he gives them this message in Colossians 1, verses 21 to 23. And it reads, once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. 
But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight, without blemish and free from accusation. If you continue in your faith, established and firm, and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel. This is the gospel that you heard, and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven, and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. So as believers in Christ, those who have been grafted in, those who have been inserted into God's family, we must continue to put our faith in the gospel. We're not called to put our own trust and faith into our own skill set or our own heritage or our own political party or our own savings or retirement plan. I'll put it, I'll put it this way. Do you believe in the gospel? And the gospel is that Jesus has reconciled us back to our father in heaven by taking on our sin and giving us his righteousness. This is the same sin that rightfully should have followed with God's judgment towards us. And we see a bit of that in the passage when it talks about God being stern with those who have rejected him. So the book I mentioned earlier, Evangelism in the Early Church, um, I've continued to read that book, and I didn't mention the single most effective success to evangelizing to the Israelites. Can anyone think of what, what it was? It was none other than the person and character of Jesus. His love his words, his miracles provoked the Israelites to believe in the gospel. And here's the thing. Jesus is the gospel. He is the good news that we are dying to hear and dying to believe. And so the Jews weren't so far gone that they weren't able to be recovered or regrafted, as Paul puts it, into God's family. And we, too, have that same opportunity to be inserted into that family that, if I'm going to be frank, we have no business being a part of. And so why did God graft us believers in? Well, I don't, I don't know why, but the how is very clear. He grafted us in when God sent the vine, Jesus Christ. John 15, verse 5 says, I am the vine. You are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. It's in the power of our Savior, Jesus Christ, who is able to mend what is broken and restore what has been damaged in our hearts and in our lives. He is the vine, and by God's grace, we are invited to be 
his branches. Let's pray. Father, we want to thank you so much for your word, your infallible word. Lord, if we're, if we're going to be honest, there are some really great things that we see in this passage. We rejoice over how you have blessed the, the Gentiles and brought them into the family. Um, but if we're going to be honest, there are a lot of hard things about this passage, too. Reconciliation doesn't come easy to us. It's not in our nature. Um, help us with that. Lord, thank you for showing us that we, by your son, Jesus Christ, we have the opportunity to be grafted and to be inserted into your family. And let us not be arrogant. That's our nature too, right? We want to feel superior. We want to feel better than our circumstances. We want to, be, we want to feel better than people and things but we're not enough. We're not kind enough. We're not generous enough. We're not rich enough. We're not smart enough. But God, by your grace, Jesus is enough. And you sent him so that we could be reconciled back to you. We thank you for that. And as we continue to ask ourselves and wrestle with hard questions with salvation, um, continue to speak to us through your word. Continue to do that. We pray this in Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you would like more information or would like to support the ministry of UCB, please visit our website at ucbogota.org.